So the talk, the talk. It's always funny to give a talk, especially a first night talk, because um, uh, we didn't get to talk to you today. Like, it's, it's much easier when there's interviews. You know, we talk to you, at least for me, I write down notes. I think, oh, this is happening, that's happening. I'll speak to that. But then not speaking to you at all, it's like, oh, what's happening? What, what should I speak to? Actually, I'm going to try and find something. I think I lost it. Maybe uh, I can't repeat it. Anyhow, um, so what I thought I would talk about tonight was a little bit to keep um, continuing from where we started yesterday. And so first of all, to continue to point at what Gil was pointing at when he talked about the desire, the different kinds of desire, where he, he was clarifying desire, what can be called skillful desire and unskillful desire or helpful desire and unhelpful desire. And I know Suzuki Roshi used to um, ask his students, he, he, would say, he would say it quite elegantly, what's your heart's inmost request? What's your heart's inmost request? And it's such a beautiful question to pose to ourselves, to really ask to ourselves, what do we really care about? What's really important? What do we love? And what happens if we let that love orient us? If we love, if what we care about the most, if we let that orient us in our life. And partly one of the reasons that we want to keep articulating that is because it, it is what underlies what brings us here. And sometimes it's a, it's the love of freedom or a great appreciation of compassion or a, a tremendous suffering and the idea that there is freedom from suffering. The, the, and, and some in, intuition that that is true, that the Dharma offers a, a refuge. Um, one of my teachers talks about it this way, Hamid Ali, he said, there is an inherent drive, an inherent drive toward truth, an inherent desire to feel fulfilled, real, and free. The impetus towards realization is in all of us, and it begins with the first stir stirrings of consciousness and continues throughout life, whether or not we are directly aware of it. So he's suggesting here we can be conscious of it or unconscious of our inmost request, our inmost desire, our love. He says, as maturity grows into wisdom, this task gains precedence over other tasks in life, progressively becoming the center that orients, supports, and gives meaning to one's life, ultimately encompassing all of one's experience. And so that desire, that request, that love actually grows both as we grow and as we practice. And it really becomes the center of our life and it's a center that is um, limitless. It's a limitless center. 
It's a boundless center. And by that I mean it includes all of our life. It's not just limited to a sitting practice. It's not just limited to going to a sitting group or a, or a retreat. It really, as it grows in us, as it matures in us, as it begins to ripen, we begin to see the world through that lens. We begin to see our lives through that lens. We begin to see the opportunities for practice are not bound by any form. And that the form, this form, is a beautiful form, a useful form, in order to develop our capacities to be present, to be awake, to be kind, to be sensitive or compassionate, aware in every situation of our life. And I I love that Gil, you know, he told the story about the right and wrong, you know, kind of desire. And then at the end, of course, he saved it by saying, oh, it's okay if you have the wrong desire here too. And I I like that because I've had a lot of wrong (coughs) desire in my life. And um, and it's true. You, it doesn't even have to be perfectly clarified yet. It's still the root is still the same in most requests. And sometimes it gets kind of you know it's like a stream headed to the ocean. It gets diverted a little bit this way, or it gets diverted over onto this side. But it's still heading downhill to the same same goal. And we start to see that okay, maybe. Maybe it really isn't going to be the, the iPhone that makes us happy. You know, it might not quite do it. Or the, whatever it might be that we think it is, the TV or the Porsche or the person or the job or the house or the situation, which are all beautiful things, great, great to have, enjoy. But not, not what brings a long-term happiness and well-being that we seek, the freedom that we seek. And I, and I like that we can have the wrong desire because um, we don't have to be perfect to practice the Dharma. We don't have to be the perfect yogi. We don't have to be the perfect meditator. We don't have to be good. We can actually be ourselves. And this is part of the art of practice is seeing what's needed is to be present with ourselves as we are, not in some idealized way, some believed way, or some way that sounds so good or that's going to happen in some other lifetime that we're never going to get to or something, some parallel universe where we're perfect. In the Shin Shin Ming, in one of the great Zen texts, they say, uh, um, to be without anxiety, realization, Realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. Realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. So let me alleviate you of your anxiety about non-perfection. And part of the art of practice that we're pointing at today is how how to enter a retreat and not be perfect. Not even do it right. But give, the, give what we can. When, uh, 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 when we see that we don't have to be perfect, a certain kind of kindness can come forward. 
certain kind of generosity of spirit can be allowed to flourish. That we can be generous with ourselves, first of all. And of course, that generosity will overflow when we really allow it to happen. And we can be generous with everybody here about their imperfections. And this, um, the, we've been given a practice. We've been given the practice. Part of the generosity that we can draw on is the fact that we've been given this practice by the Buddha, by the Buddha and by all the men and women who have practiced for 2,600 years or so, that it's come down person to person. And we continue this by receiving the gift and then giving ourselves to the practice. That the giving is is a mutual giving that happens here. The practice is given and we give ourselves to the practice. And there's an art to practice. There's an art. We could say meditation is an art. Uh, we could say it's a discipline in the, in the sense that originally the word discipline always had to do with learning. One became a disciple in order to learn. Um, and discipline actually originally didn't uh, really have much to do with, um, you know, some rules or regulations or, or conduct, things like that. It really had to do with devoting oneself to, to the discipline, to the art that one cared about, that one loved, that one wished to study in order to realize, to become. And I'm talking about any art. All art, all, all of the disciplines start off uh, with us being imperfect. In other words, we don't know how to do it. And we're here to learn, we're here to learn the art. And so we give ourselves and we give our imperfection and we give our mistakes and we give our wrong mindfulness and we give our wrong concentration. And that starts to become the, uh, um, the what's the word when they cook something in a container like this? Uh, Pardon? Cauldron? No, it's not quite the word I want. Pardon? Crucible, thank you. It becomes, that, that all goes into the crucible of practice. And, and then it starts to cook, and it starts to clarify, and it starts to refine. And of course, what's getting cooked, and what's getting clarified, and what's being refined is us. We are the instrument of this discipline, our body, heart, and mind. And it's true of many of, especially the performing arts. You know, my daughter's an actor these days, and, you know, she talks about, oh, she is, this is her instrument, right? Her body, her emotions, her mind, her, that's, and it's really the same for us. This is the, this is the, uh, discipline that we're studying is ourselves. And we're, we start 
And we're starting here on the retreat very simply, very simple. It's almost what's hard for us. We're not used to being simple. We're much more used, we're much more familiar. We're much more, um, it's almost comfortable with things being complex. There's an art to learning the simplicity of being here now. And you could even notice how, how you're doing now. Are you here now? Are you with your body now? Are you with the experience of whatever the talk, you know, it's good or it's bad, liking or disliking, interesting, not interesting. And then the energy of the body, maybe you're tired or achy or whatever's here. But just, are you here now? In that simplicity, without a lot of having to judge it, evaluate it, figure it out, do something about it. Can you feel a breath in the middle? Can you feel the aliveness that's here in the middle of wherever you're at? One way we could think about uh, the art of practice or the is there are certain skills that we learn in an art, whether it's painting or dancing or acting or whether it's a, or whether it's a discipline like an athletic discipline, a sport, a basketball or hockey or swimming or bike riding or running. There's certain certain skills, and then. And then part of how we learn the skill here, what's interesting here is part of how we learn the skill is part of the art. How we engage the skill, so learning the skill of being with the breath, is not just about, oh, I'm with the breath, right? Anybody notice that they might not have been with the breath the whole time today? Is that, can I take that for granted? Or just one person raise their hand? Okay, just you, then, yeah. Um, uh, but there are a whole list of skills being developed by attempting to be with the simple in-breath, out-breath. Right? I mean, that is a totally simple thing to do and incredibly difficult. So, so part of the skills that we're learning are, first of all, uh, patience, really helpful. One of the skills we're learning, or comes forward quite naturally, is kindness. Especially when we feel the suffering of body, of heart and mind, the achiness, the turmoil that might be here, the agitation. That as we really get present and see the suffering, the suffering that I'm sure sits in every seat here, that a certain a quality of heart is allowed to come forward if we're open to being with what's true. So another, another skill that's being developed as we be with the breath is being with what's true. In other words, as I said, I believe I said last night, I've been teaching a lot, and it's easy to forget where you taught what. But uh, I think I said it last night, you can't do Vipassana by pretending. Right? I'm going to be with the breath and I'm not exhausted. You know, I'm feeling exhausted. Well, I'm going to be with the breath. 
you know, you're, we fall over. And so, so the acknowledgement or attending, as, as Gil likes to say, attending to what's here, skillfully as an art, as a practice, means finding a certain kind of sensitivity, kindness, uh, empathy for our own direct human experience. Because part of it, as I think everybody knows here, anybody not know the word dukkha here? Let me just see. Anybody not know dukkha? This is a totally a dukkha down crowd. Okay. It's my kind of folks here. Um, uh, um, what was I saying? It's a different kind of dukkha that happens as you get older. Okay, I was saying something about the Dharma and practice. And, <laughs> uh, anybody want to help me, or have you all forgotten already? <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, uh, that um, so to be aware of the dukkha, to be with the truth of dukkha that's of course going to be here on the first day, brings forth, uh, will bring forth a certain quality of heart. Now, some of you may have noticed it bring, can bring forth a quality of mind that is actually not so kind. Right? It can bring forth the judging mind if we're spaced out, if we're sleepy, if we're agitated, if we're thinking. And, you know... Uh, as best as we can, it's really important to be mindful of the judging mind. But in fact, um, if, we're, if we're mindful of the impact of the judging mind, we will see that it's painful to be judged in that way. It actually, it, it's hurtful. It hurts. And so if we just stay present with the impact, then the compassion can also arise. Because when we see the suffering, compassion will come. So patience is part of what's happening here today. Kindness is part of what's happening here. Developing a certain kind of pliancy or flexibility, super important to any art. I was watching um, the movie La Danse uh, about the Paris Paris Opera Ballet, the Opera Ballet of Paris. And it's a very interesting documentary. And um, the, the dancers work incredibly hard. And then they've got somebody telling them what's wrong, right? They've been working on the dance, and there's the dance master saying, no, no, like this, like this. And you see them shifting moment by moment, changing what they've been doing. You know, they're going with what, what's the instruction? What's the instruction? They keep, and you see they have an incredible fluidity, flexibility, pliancy of both body, but also of mind and spirit. Because they they've given themselves to the dance. It's not about them. It's about the dance. It's about something's more important than them. And the dance is what's most important and so we're in, in giving ourselves to the practice, we are also giving ourselves to something that's greater than us, that's bigger than us, that's in some sense more important than us, and will of, of course is related to our deepest care, our deepest love, our deepest desire. 
And so in order to realize that, we give ourselves and we begin to develop a kind of pliancy. You may not be feeling so physically pliant after a day of sitting like this. It will come more as we keep centering, as we keep bringing things together, as we're just here. And then the body, even though, and it's really good, take care of your body, do the yoga, but we'll also talk about ways to practice with the tightness. And we're a little bit, it got mentioned today, and I'll, I'll go to it in a minute or two. Um, we're also learning in that pliancy, we're learning how to bring together what are often thought of as conflicting qualities or diverse qualities or contradictory qualities, like alertness and relaxation. Like that's a beautiful, beautiful teaching, just that. How to let the body embody this awakeness and this and, and, and the uh, aspiration of what we love with the kindness and care and ease and relaxation that we know will support the unfoldment and the awakening of what we love. <clears throat> I was in Africa this year, and uh, my, the group that I'm part of in San Francisco has a sister sangha in South Africa. And uh, my wife and I went to visit um, our sister sangha, Dharmagiri, and we've been involved in some of their outreach projects uh, in the uh, Zulu community in Africa. And so we went for the, we've been involved in one program for eight years, and we've been launching another program in the AIDS epidemic in South Africa, which is pandemic, really. And... Um, uh, so we went for the we went to both projects, and uh, of course um, uh, the practices there or the way that um, uh, spirit is expressed is a lot through song and I was so struck by this one woman who who sang the first song at the opening of this project. she was a big, beautiful woman and um, the power of her singing and the total relaxedness of her body, I, I, quite, I hadn't quite seen that before. You know, I was a musician for many years and I was around a lot of classical musicians and I was around a lot of jazz musicians. I'd never seen anybody with this power uh, of voice and the, her absolute presence in her body. Boom. It was beautiful. You know, the image is very striking. Um, and, and one of the... What happens as we land here in our bodies, which is what we're doing with mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breath. And of course, the breath is a mindfulness of the body practice. They're not really separate. They're just discriminated out. We discriminate out the breath because it helps refine our uh, mindfulness and is a very wonderful, beautiful uh, a part of the bodily experience to pay attention to. But it's not separate from the body. It is a mindfulness of the body practice. 
And the body practices in particular support this uh, uh, unification that begins to come of just being here. And the whole movement towards the, the uh, mindfulness of the body and the breathing, in addition to all these factors or qualities that either get awakened or cultivated like patience or like uh, relax, a certain kind of relaxation and awakeness and um, uh, um, kindness and um, um, the various other capacities that come, what comes is this gathering right, of attention here with the body, gathering, collecting, composing, bringing together, concentrating. And this is the practice of samadhi. And samadhi, I like the word samadhi a little better than concentration personally because it's, so, it's such a rich word. It's like dukkha being better than suffering. Dukkha is a much richer word than suffering. Samadhi, um, it's not just a samadhi. The kind of samadhi we're cultivating is not a narrowing of attention. It's a gathering and a, a, a collecting and a composing and a centering of attention. It's not a narrowing and I'll say a few things about this. One is, first of all, the word concentrate. Let's see if I can get this right. Um, one of the meanings, you can tell me if I'm wrong, Nona, um, is a point around which a circle is drawn. Point around which a circle is drawn. Any word with centra in it. And I think that's a really good <coughs> image for us in terms of concentrating. Because often we think of it as this closing down and narrowing, or we have associations with tightness around concentration. We don't often think of it as both direct, that point around which the center is drawn, uh, drawn and the center. And that, because that, uh, or that circle, the point around which a circle is drawn, that's how it goes, point around which a circle is drawn, that circle includes everything. The same spirit of no part left out. We center in the body and breathing, but we don't want to be in contention with any part of our experience. And we don't need to be to keep centering because that center can grow to include every part of our experience. And that's really the direction of the unfoldment of the instructions. We start with the body and breath and we go on to the feelings and emotions and mind states and we go into the mind and the thoughts and then, and then beyond that, beyond all of that. And so, but we don't lose our concentration. No, our concentration actually is not just narrow but also expansive. And it expands to include everything. And here, let's see if there's a couple ways we can think about this. One is, um, here's the metaphor the Buddha gives for, for absorption, which is the bringing together of body and mind fully together. And, it's, and I'm using my hands in this way because it's the image he describes. He says... Um, just as if a skilled bathman or bathwoman or a bathman or bathwoman's apprentice would pour 
bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water so that the ball of bath powder, saturated, moistened, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Right? It, it become, the water and the powder start to become one. They start to collect and compose, and, and, and it, it's one thing. And would nevertheless not drift, drip, even so, the monk or nun permeates this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of withdrawal, in other words, of seclusion, of the, the good means that we have here, and the relaxation that can come as we start to get centered. And we don't just go off with the relaxation, we don't just go off with the Um, good feeling that does come as we start to land here very fully. No, we actually want to just keep weaving that in, just keep keep letting that be be in pulled in or 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 woven in or uh, 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 included very fully, just like um, the water in the powder. So it's all here and it enriches the moment rather than oh we go off with it particularly. And he says, and there is nothing of one's entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. And one remains thus heedful, mindful, ardent, resolute, letting go of any memories and resolves related to the household or life. And with the abandoning, one's mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. So this is, here's the, the part of our, um, the art that we're learning. How do we begin to let the consciousness, mindfulness, awareness, not even sure which word is best here, begin to seep or soak or saturate the physical experience? And it's an it's a skill, an art that we have to experiment with. And even now, take a moment and just see how is it to let your awareness or mindfulness saturate your body? Is that what happens? Is what, if, what does it feel like, especially if we let go of any idea of how it should be or how it's supposed to be or what the body's supposed to feel like? But just let it seep in and, and show us what it does, however it is. What's that direct experience like? And Tanisaro Bhikkhu, he talks about this as, as the sense of bodiness. And it may or may not conform to the physical shape or form, or even the weight or the solidity. It might feel, as you sense the body, feel the body, um, saturate the body with awareness, it could feel it could feel light and empty. It could feel effervescent, could feel dense or heavy, could feel vibrant or quiet or still. And we're, we don't even have to name it. You just know it through the feeling, the direct knowing, the direct experience.
And this is how we begin to collect, to compose. And of course, the breath is right there. The breath is there when we're in the body. And you may notice it a little more distinctly at one point or the whole body. And then, of course, for some of us, we'll feel like, oh, I'm not doing it right, or I don't know what he means. Or... So here's your practice. Your practice is to experiment. Your practice is to be imperfect and make mistakes and let the Dharma show you. Because the words we give here, we're all, all the words are pointers. And they could be, you know, some pointers are a little more pointed than others, a little clearer. But in fact, you have to find the living Dharma within you because that is where the Dharma lives. And so even to talk about concentrating, it means coming out of our thoughts, coming out of our ideas, and really seeing what is it to let the, this quality of knowing, even before cognizing, even before we know what the body feels like, just the knowing that we feel something and feeling that something, that bodiness. Or take it simpler, feel your hands on your face or your hands on your lap. It's that simple, it can be that simple to start there. And then how is it to allow or let consciousness to remain with that? To let the mindfulness stay with the experience because of course we want to encourage and develop this continuity that we talked about. This collectedness or composure, the samadhi. Um, I, I want to say one more thing about the samadhi before I describe to you the Buddha's samadhi, which is a pretty nice samadhi that the Buddha had. Um, uh, in, the, in the Eightfold Path, you get the, the different limbs of the path, right understanding, right intention or aspiration, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And, the, and, and those eight limbs are divided. There's the wisdom basket of, of understanding or right view and right intention. There's the uh, uh, sila basket of virtue or ethical conduct about how we act in the world with speech and with uh, livelihood and with right action. And then there's the contemplative basket, which is effort, mindfulness, concentration. But the name of the contemplative basket is samadhi. And I always found that really interesting. It's the samadhi basket, that those three rites, those three areas the Buddha say, said pay particular attention to, right mindfulness, right um, uh, effort, and right concentration, 
were for the development of samadhi, of a kind of presence that Sharda mentioned that we're, we're developing a certain kind of presence, we're inviting a certain kind of presence. That's knowing, the mindfulness is right there, the knowing is right there, and the presence is quite powerful. And you hear the Buddha talking about his mind, that after he's gone through a number of the, he's gotten deeply concentrated, and he says, he says, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it. This is, actually, let me tell you what I'm reading. I'm reading from the night of his enlightenment. And this is the actual enlightenment begins with him recognizing his mind. He sees this, this is what happened which is his mind had collected, his composure had developed, had matured to such a degree that his mind was bright. And this is an important understanding of concentration. It's not a darkening, it's not a narrowing, it's a brightening of the mind. Um, In my understanding, from my teachers, um, and that it's a mind that's purified or clarified. It's, It's the hindrances are gone, the calaces are gone, the 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 um, the agitation and the anger and the this and the that that we bring here has has relaxed has begun has faded and so he's got a mind that's purified that's bright unblemished rid of imperfection malleable pliable wieldy steady steady and and attained to imperturbability and with that mind, he says, I directed it to knowledge of the recollection of past lives. This is the first watch of the night of his enlightenment. And the Buddha does an interesting thing here. He turns his attention. He takes this concentrated heart and mind, and he turns and looks at himself. And he looks at himself in a really big way, right? He looks at all his cells, right, in the story. And, you know, you don't have to do that here. If you start doing that, just let us know if that's happening. It's good. We like to hear. We like to hear who you've been. Um, but, but he takes it and he's mindful of himself. And, of course, we all know this is part of mindfulness, to be mindful of ourselves. We're doing it already. And then he goes on. He says in the second watch of the night, the same thing. He says... And he he does this, and at a certain point he says, this was the first true knowledge attained by me in the first watch of the night. Ignorance was banished, and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished, and light arose, as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent, and resolute. And then he again says, when my concentrated mind was purified, bright, you know, malleable, wieldy, this is the mind we're cultivating. The bringing together of body and mind into the present moment, bringing ourselves into the present again and again, first with the body, first with the breathing. But ultimately, that concentration is the point around which a circle is drawn, and we're going to include everything with that bright mind, just as the Buddha did. 
right? Here he's not just staying with the body and the breathing, which is what he was doing the night of his enlightenment. That was his practice, was anapanasati, mindfulness of the breath. But then he, at that point, he begins to open, or he heard somebody gave him the instructions like we give day by day, and so he opened up. Um, And then the second watch of the night, he turns, now the attention is not turned inward, it's actually turned outward. And it's turned outward, and he sees other beings, and he sees their lives and their suffering. And this is very important, and we don't talk about this, in my mind, we don't talk about this enough. In the sutta on mindfulness, in the insight, there's an insight after each of the different um, uh, skillful means, mindfulness of the body posture, mindfulness of the breathing, mindfulness of the body and all the movements, mindfulness of the different parts of the body, etc., etc., there's an insight, and the insight basically says this is how a practitioner practices. And, and it's said, maybe I should read it just to be accurate. And it's said, so one, one abides contemplating the body as a body internally, right? We, that's what we're doing here. But then it says, or one abides contemplating the body as a body externally, or one abides contemplating the body as a body both internally and externally. And for me, this is a very important instruction because this becomes the ground for our continuity on this retreat. We're not just practicing mindfulness here and here and in, and, but actually we're, opening, we're going to open up to every experience, both so-called inner and so-called outer experience. Right? We make this distinction. It may be an artificial distinction, inner and outer. It might be appropriate discrimination to begin with, but it might not be an appropriate way to reify reality. That the whole idea of inner and outer, you know, it's, it's, it has its relative truth, but it may not be ultimate truth. And we'll, we'll go into that more as we go on. So the, but the Buddha, and this happened on the night of his enlightenment, at first he looks inward and then he looks outward with the same mind. And so the mind that we're developing here, the heart that we're developing here, the presence we're developing here, we're cultivating by doing this simple practice. We want to bring that simplicity to every action. We want to bring that malleability uh, and sensitivity and mindfulness and wakefulness to each activity. And that's an art. It, 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 we're building the tools, but actually each action will have its own nuance. Um, I know personally, here's, here's a personal example. I sat on a cushion for about 15 years, and at some point I, did, I made the switch to the chair. At first, when I went to sit on the chair, I couldn't, I couldn't practice. Like, I can't practice on a chair. Right? You know, it's like, no, only on the cushion. That's where I can practice. (laughs) And there was some truth to that. The truth was that I actually had a kind of somatic memory that would come whenever I sat on the cushion. It's like, oh, this is practice. And so there was both a mental idea, but there's actually a somatic learning that had happened here that my body knew. 
And it took a while before I had that bodily learning on the chair. And so each action, we, have to, we, we can even think we're beginners with each action. Oh, how is it to practice opening a door? How do we do that really mindfully? Or, or are we doing it with some idea that we're being mindful? Or how do, we do, how do we stay in our body and connected to the physicality that is a certain way... Um, I shouldn't go there. I'm not going to go there. Um, how can we just stay connected to the present moment through our physicality, even while we're listening to the talk, instead of assuming we're being mindful? How can we practice walking when we're walking down the hill? And we're not doing this really the slow walking, but we're walking. Or the eating meditation, which I, I hope to give some instructions about tomorrow. Or the peeing meditation. Let's get honest here. Let's get down. You know, that's a meditation. How many people have been doing that today as a meditation? Okay, there's some hands. It is, it's a practice. The whole, the whole of our time here is a practice. And uh, the third watch of the night, with that same mind, the Buddha realizes the Four Noble Truths. He sees suffering. He sees the causes of suffering. He sees the end of suffering. And he sees how the path leads to the end of suffering. So where we're starting is here, with this, with what we're given, right? Not only are we giving ourselves, not only have we been given a practice, not only are we giving ourselves to practice, but even our instrument has been given, right? The body's been given for, you know, however many years. And we're going to work with this, but we're not, this is not, this is the beginning, it's not the end of practice. The practice keeps opening so that the seeming divisions between body and heart and mind, or self and other, or hot and cold, those begin to get included too. Included in this gathering, in this bringing together, in this composing, in this collecting. So we start to see what's actually here is not really so separate. That the Dharma begins to reveal itself. The truth of the interconnectedness of all things all beings, but all things, everything that is happening, totally interconnected, interdependent. It can't be any other way. So I hope the talk has been a little bit helpful. I hope it's been encouraging. I hope that you, um, I hope you can have fun with practice. And I mean that quite seriously. It's serious practice. But what an adventure. I mean, what, what an adventure to have the time and the means and the circumstances and the well-being and the health to be here and really look deeply at what we love 
and what we care about and what's important to us. And to do it together, to feel the power of us doing it together. And let's sit for a minute. I'll end with a quote. This is from Suzuki Roshi, and it's about breath meditation. Of course, you know that breath, that spirit itself, means breath. Gil was talking about the aspire, also inspire, the inspiration, the in-breath. And of course, breath, spirit, inspire. That when we begin to become very present, very sensitive, unifying ourselves with the body and the breathing, there is a certain spirit that arises that we don't do. We don't make it happen. It's the Dharma arising naturally as the Dharma will arise moment by moment. Suzuki Roshi, he said, when we practice meditation, our mind always follows our breathing. When we inhale, the air comes into the inner world. When we exhale, the air comes out to the outer world. The inner world is limitless. The outer world is also limitless. We say inner world or outer world, but actually there is just one whole world. In this limitless world, the air comes in and goes out like someone passing through a swinging door. If you think I breathe, the I is extra. There is no you to say I. What we call I is just the swinging door that moves when we inhale and when we exhale. It just moves, that is all. When your mind is pure and calm enough to follow this movement, there is nothing no I, no world, no mind, no body, just a swinging door, just a moment. So when we practice, all that exists is the movement of the breathing and we are aware of this movement. But to be aware of the movement does not mean to be aware of your small sense of self, but rather of your universal nature, your Buddha nature. This interconnected interdependent, magically arisen nature that's breathing here right now. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.